and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed that believers would be one, just as he and the Father are one. Why? So the world would know that God sent Jesus and that he loved us like he loves his Son. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series, The Church, with this message entitled, God's Redeemed Family, which covers 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me into the book of 1 Peter. And we are returning to a series that Randy's been leading us in, this series on the church. We took a brief hiatus over Thanksgiving, and Randy so far has led us through three weeks where he's talked about the authority of the church. What are the keys of the kingdom, church membership, church discipline? But we're about to spend three weeks, I'll be doing the first week and then Randy will be doing the next two, where we're looking at the book of 1 Peter and what it has to say about the nature of the church. Those things that set the people of God apart in the midst of a world that is often uncomprehending and hostile. And this church that Peter's writing to, it's a church a lot like us. These are people who've heard the gospel, a people who have believed the gospel, a people who have rejoiced in the gospel, but they have come into contact with the hostility and the brokenness of this world in a way that has caused them to question whether or not Jesus is really going to deliver them. They're suffering, they're hurting, they're despairing, and Peter writes to this church to remind them yet again of the riches that they have in Jesus, that they may be exiles in the land, but they are beloved exiles, redeemed and restored and sustained by the hand of God himself, people who have received a hope that transforms not just who they are, but how they live. And transforms them not only individually, but corporately as the people of God, the church. Here's what it says, starting in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, your faith in the gospel, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away, put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, we pray, take this text, and Lord, bring it to life in our ears, in our eyes, in our hearts, in such a way, Lord, that we would see and behold the beauty of Jesus, and not just see you, but seize a hold of you by faith in a deeper way than before. Transform us, in the very nature of our being, and take this time. Speak through me in my weakness and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple weeks ago, a friend of mine sent me an article that he thought I'd be interested in, this article that had a title that said this, 
CrossFit is my church. Now, anything you send me on CrossFit, I will probably read because I like CrossFit. But what stuck out to me about this article was what it had to say about the things that you and I as human beings innately crave, the things we long for. This article described an America whose religious landscape is slowly but surely changing, where the way things used to be are no longer the way things are, and there is one group that is growing faster than almost any other. This group that they are now calling the religious nuns. Not atheists, not agnostics, but people who are walking away from organized religion in every form and who are choosing to be religiously unaffiliated. A group that makes up one-fifth of the current population of the United States, but a whopping 30% of every adult under 30. It's growing fast. But here's what stuck out to me in the article. It's that while these people are walking away from religious labels, they're not walking away from the quest for religious experience. They're flocking to organizations and things that mirror or mimic the experiences that they used to have in religious community. And one of the places that people are running to is group fitness classes like CrossFit to the degree that they're quite literally saying, I don't need church anymore because I have my gym. And here's what the article says. People come to these gyms because they want to lose weight and gain muscle, but they stay. They stay for the community. It's the relationships, the sense of belonging that keeps them coming back. There is this longing to belong to something deeper that gives you meaning and purpose in the midst of the world, to be a part of a family, not of superficial relationships, but of real, tangible, intimate relationships. We crave that, don't we? I remember as a little kid in middle school just craving to have some spot at a table in the lunchroom, a place where I could feel like I belonged. It's why as Americans we love holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas because, not necessarily because we even understand the religious underpinnings that birth them, but because we see it as this chance to come together as families in love and in unity and in peace and for just a second to belong to something bigger. It's why a whole bunch of us, myself included, were screaming at our televisions last night hoping that our team was going to win a football game because our hope was that we were for just a second, we were going to belong to something bigger than ourselves and we wanted it so badly we were willing to risk even heartbreak, even heartbreak to have it. We crave this. But the question that should always arise when you see these kinds of things, these tendencies, these longings in our heart is to go, why? Peter says, here's why. It is an echo of a longing that you were created to have, of something you were created to have, and that God alone can actually give you. A family that God has actually given you in full through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Peter in this text says if you were a believer in Jesus Christ and you call on God as Father, then you have been brought by God's grace into a family unlike any other in the world. 
A family brought together not by personal preference, not because you paid your dues at the gym, but a family that is brought together from every tribe and language and people and tongue by the hand of God himself, a family that can weather any storm and endure any trial because its roots are deeper and its hope is greater than anything else. And if you are in Christ, it is a family you are a part of right now. And if you were a part of that family, then what Peter is saying in the text we just read is that is a gift, not to be ignored, not to be abandoned. It's a gift to be embraced with everything we have. It is a family the redeemed family of God that we embrace first by loving one another and loving one another earnestly. Look at what he says in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is a family Well, you're not just supposed to tolerate the other people in it. You're supposed to love them and love them with the love of a very specific kind. Notice how Peter describes this love. It's a sincere love and not a hypocritical love. It's a family love, a brotherly love, a phileo love that is born not of human preference but runs and actually has its source and its roots in something far deeper. It's an agape love. A sacrificial love. A love that looks on other people and says, I would rather lose my comforts, my possessions, and even my life. I would rather give all those things up. I would give them up willingly if it means you're flourishing. A love that's to be not apathetic, but earnest. A Greek word that is used elsewhere to describe Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is something that is intense and fervent and passionate. And it is a love that is to issue forth not from a heart that's bent on manipulating people or gaining something from people or possessing people, but a love that is born from a pure heart. Peter says that's the kind of love the family of God is to have for each other. And it is a love upon which he puts absolutely no condition. He doesn't say, Love one another earnestly so long as they love you back. He doesn't say love one another earnestly so long as they share the same political beliefs or so long as they treat you nicely or so long as they give you what you think you deserve, so long as they do this, that, or the other. You are to love them earnestly from a pure heart, period. Full stop. Regardless of what they do, regardless of what they say, regardless of how they behave, regardless of if you even like them, love them. Now, if you're like me, you realize immediately that is not something that you and I can do, is it? This isn't just a normal love. This isn't the love you see in our culture. This is an impossible love. I can't count the number of times I've woken up in the morning and I've said, today, I'm resolving, I am going to love my family even as Christ has loved me. When my little girls take the eggs I just made them and throw them on the floor, I'm not going to be frustrated. I'm going to gently and kindly bend down, pick them up, and put them back on their plate. Uh, Possibly even feed it to them. Who knows? I might be feeling generous. When my wife 
asks me to do one more thing before I leave and I'm running late and I'm stressed out, I'm not going to snap back. I'm not going to do it begrudgingly. I am going to kindly, gently, compassionately do whatever she asks with a joyful spirit. I'm going to love them. And then I walk out of my basement and the eggs fly and things change and all of it falls apart. None of us can love like this. We're broken people in a broken world whose hearts are distorted and confused and stained by sin. And Peter is sitting here saying, I'm not calling you to a love that you can conjure up yourself. God is not calling you to a love you can conjure up yourself. He's calling you to an impossible love born not of human effort, human resolution, or human conviction, but born instead of something else entirely. God's imperishable seed. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, and look at verse 23. Here's why. Since, because, you have been born again. Let's pause there for just a second. Here's what Peter's saying. When you became a believer in Jesus Christ, when God brought you into his family, he didn't just give you a new name. He didn't just slap a name tag on your chest that went from saying Caleb Click to Caleb Christian and then everything else stayed the way it was. What has God done? He's given you not only a new name, he has given you in Jesus a new nature. It's with the language that Jesus uses in John 3 when he says that unless you are born again from above, unless God himself gives you a new heart with new passions and new desires, You and I, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the language that Peter, earlier in the same chapter, verse 3, says that God in his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, not a hope that perishes like the rest of the world, but a hope that endures. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Into a hope that never fades and a hope that can't be taken away. God has not just given you a new name. He hasn't just said you're now a part of this family and everything else remains the same. He has given you a completely new nature. You've been born again. And then he says this, born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We live in a world full of perishable things, where everything that we see, everything that we touch, everything that we taste, no matter how beautiful, no matter how lasting it may look, in the end, it is like the grass that is here one moment and gone the next. One of the most famous paintings in the world is a painting that Leonardo da Vinci did of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, a painting called The Last Supper. And most of us have seen it. It's Jesus at the center of a table with his arms spread out and on his sides are the disciples. It's a, a painting that's inspired movies and books and commentary, and it is a painting that from the very moment that Leonardo da Vinci painted it, it is a painting that has been decaying. Within 20 years of him finishing that project, it had already begun to lose the paint. It was flaking away. Chips of it were coming off. 
And though people across the centuries have employed all of their skill, all of their effort, and millions upon millions of dollars to preserve and restore that painting, what they have all inevitably come face to face with is this. No matter how hard we work, no matter how far hard we fight, we might prolong the life of this painting, but in the end, we can't save it. It'll perish. All earthly glory is like that. Every nation, every business, every person, every material possession, it is something that has a beauty that is here one moment and then fades in the next just like a flower in a field. It does not last. It perishes. But Peter says, that's not this. We are not those who have been born of perishable seed. He says, no, you have been redeemed into a family of a wholly different kind that possesses a wholly different nature because you have been born of a wholly different seed. Not a perishable seed, but an imperishable one. The living and abiding Word of God. The Word that the prophets proclaimed when they spoke of one who would come and redeem his people. The word contained in the very Old Testament text, he's quoting here, Isaiah 40, that speaks of the grass that withers and the flower that fades. That's also a text where in the very same chapter, God comes to Israel in exile and he says, I will comfort you. I will wash away your sins. I will do away with every obstacle that stands between you and my salvation, even if it's your own heart's. I will gather you in my arms like a shepherd tenderly gathers his sheep. And though all the world tells you that that hope, it is a futile hope, it is something that cannot be, this is what is true. The nations that rage, the people that threaten, they will fall away, but this word will not. It will remain. And Peter says, that's the word that was preached to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the comfort promised to Israel. Jesus is the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the one who clears away every obstacle between you and God's salvation. Jesus is the shepherd who tenderly takes you in his arms at the cost of his own life. And Jesus, the word of Jesus preached in the gospel, it is a word that when it is proclaimed and it is heard, it takes those who are dead and it makes them alive. And it brings you out of a world of perishable things into a world of imperishable ones. To be a people who have an imperishable hope, an imperishable faith because it is sustained by God, and who have received an imperishable nature, even the nature of God himself. And before you think what I just said is heretical, that's almost an exact quote from 2 Peter 1. Those who are born again are partakers of the divine nature. And if you have the nature of Christ as those who are born again, that means you also have the love of Christ. A love that is as imperishable as the seed which bore it. This is a love born not by human power or might, but it is born of God's imperishable seed. But it is also a love that flows from faith in God's gospel. I read verse 22 earlier, but I, I didn't unpack it. 
It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, your faith in the gospel, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter says, you heard the gospel. You heard the gospel preached. God made you something new. He caused you to be born again from above, and you have responded in faith. You've obeyed the gospel. You have given the obedience the gospel demands, faith. And as those who have believed in him, you have set yourselves apart. You have purified your souls that you would follow him wherever Jesus would lead you. But here's the part we generally skip. Where is it that Jesus leads them? What was the purpose of this redemption? It wasn't just that you would be made right with God. What does it say? You were redeemed for what? For a sincere brotherly love. The very reason Jesus saved you, it was not just that you would be brought back into right relationship with God. It was that you would be brought back into right relationship with each other as the family of God that was created to be, that God always intended to be, and in Jesus' guarantees will one day be in full. That's the reason you were saved. Which means that the mark of the one who is born again, the one who shares the very nature of Jesus, is that you love his church. Because how can you be obedient to that gospel if you deny the very purpose for which you were redeemed? I mentioned earlier that the religious landscape in America is shifting. And it's shifting not just with people who would say they're outside the church, but even those who would say they're inside. There's a group of people who would articulate to you a very orthodox gospel for the most part of one God who created the heavens and the earth, of Jesus, born of a virgin, died, rose again, who was the only way to the Father. They'd confess the Trinity, they confess the need for the Bible and for prayer, except for this one piece, which means they deny the last part of the Apostles' Creed. I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. My first response, when I hear something like that, is usually to sit there in disbelief and go, are you reading the same Bible I am? Because God never saves you just as an individual. He saves you and makes you part of a people, a community. You cannot have one without the other. But I think this text, before we ever begin to sling stones at those who would say that, I think this text invites us to do something else first. It invites us to stop and ask if maybe there's a log in our eye that needs to be addressed. Because it is possible to work at the church like I do, to be a member of a church like many of you are, to attend a church as you are at this moment, to be here week in and week out, but to never truly have embraced God's family. And the question that has to be asked is this. Have you actually loved God's people with the impossible love that Peter calls you to here? 
when I hear that, there is a part of me where my heart breaks because I realize that I do not love the church in the way I should. With the sincere brotherly love to which we've been called. With the agape love that Jesus himself has displayed to us. And there is a part of me that trembles when I think about that. But this, this is why these texts are so sweet, what makes the gospel so beautiful. Jesus invites you to that self-reflection, not that you would be condemned, but that you would cling ever more deeply to the imperishable hope that you have in him. Because who is the one who has paid for all your sins? He's the one who invites you to confess them. And he is also the one who even now invites you to repent and by faith in what he has done, turn and love your brothers and sisters. Even as he calls you to here. I say that, but I also realize that there are some of you in this room who you may be part of that very group that I just spoke of. You love, the church, or love, God's, you love Jesus, but you don't love the church. And maybe you're here today for reasons you don't really fully comprehend. You're not sure why you showed up. And you've left the church because you've been hurt, because you've been wounded. And if that's you, then first let me say I'm so sorry for whatever's happened to you. But second, let me say this. Do not so easily abandon what Jesus gave so much to save. Because how can you be obedient to the gospel truly if you reject the very purpose for which you were redeemed? How can you love Jesus truly if you reject the very people that he has made himself so near to that he says they are members of my own body. To reject God's people, it is to reject God himself. Come home. And you may say that's impossible. You may say there is no way I could come back. I could not do it. I couldn't face it. Jesus says you don't have to have the strength and you don't have to have the ability because I'm the one who gives it to you. There is grace for you. Embrace God's family by loving one another. And then Peter says this one thing more. This thing that if we are to flourish as God's people, if we're to truly love one another, even as God has called us to in this text, there's something we need if we're going to grow. Something we're supposed to crave. Pure, spiritual milk. Chapter 2, he says, put away, as God's redeemed people, those called to this kind of a love, put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is a text uh, that has become more vibrant to me over the past few years for a very simple reason. I've actually experienced what it's like to live in a house with infants. It changes things. Because you realize, no matter what you thought you knew before, that infants, they are not indifferent to milk. Uh, milk is not something that they turn their noses up at. It's not something that they're kind of like unsure if they want it. Babies crave milk with an animalistic vampire for blood kind of intensity. <laughs> Morning, noon, and night, they want milk. 1 a.m. and 1 p.m., they scream for milk. 
doesn't matter if you're in a room like this and you have no access to milk, they will scream until you provide it. My daughters, my twins, not that long ago, if I brought a bottle into their room, they would literally, if it was a singular bottle, they would crawl over each other to get to it. Alice would have Lucy by the hair, and Lucy would be grabbing Alice by the ankles, and it would be turning into like a cage match over a thing of milk. It was beautiful to see. <laughs> now, why do they do that? Because babies, by God's design, they know that if they don't drink that milk, they will die. You're not going to grow so they crave it. Peter says there is a food that the born-again people of God are to crave with the same animalistic vampire-for-blood intensity that a baby hungers for milk, a food without which you will perish, and a food with, without which you will never grow into what God has called you to be. And so the question, the all-important question is what is that milk? The traditional answer is that that milk is the living and abiding Word of God, that it's the Scriptures as contained in the Old and the New Testaments that we now see in full in the person and the work of Jesus. And while I don't think it's less than that, I'm now convinced it's more. I taught that this was the Word just a couple months ago, and I'm, I think I'm wrong. I think I was wrong. Because notice what follows in this text. What does he say in verse 3? Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That last line, Peter's doing something he does all through this book. He's taking an Old Testament text and he is applying it to the New Testament people of God and he is saying this text, it doesn't cease to have relevance to you, it actually applies to you in an even deeper way than it did before because the spirit of the one who is speaking through the prophets, as he says earlier in the chapter, he is the one you have met in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It applies now. And this line is an almost exact quote from the Greek translation of Psalm 34, verse 8, a psalm of David where David has been rescued by God's hand from an enemy that he could not in his own strength overpower, something that human resources could have never delivered him from. God has saved him, and David is calling to all of God's people in a world where they are threatened on every side, and he's saying, come, taste, see, the Lord is good. He will deliver you from all your fears. He is a refuge and a strength, a fortress, a protector. Come, taste him, see him, trust him. A psalm that Peter is going to quote repeatedly in the book of 1 Peter that has special resonance because what's happening to this church? They are a people surrounded by things that terrify them who are wondering if God will save. And Peter is taking that text and saying, Israel's God, he is the one who delivers. Hold fast. But he does something significant I don't want you to miss. He changes that line. Not to change the meaning, but so that you would not miss the application he intends. It doesn't say, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
What does it say? He drops the sight because he's talking about food. And then he changes the tense so that he is speaking not of something that you have yet to taste, but something you already have. If indeed you have tasted, not that the word is good, though it is, that the Lord is good. The shepherd of Isaiah 40 who gathers you in his arms that you have seen in the person and the work of Jesus. That's what you've tasted. When I was growing up, my family never went out to eat very much. Uh, my mom was usually the one who cooked for us, and it was fantastic food. My mom is a, a great chef. I never wanted for something good to eat. But we didn't go out to eat almost at all. And if we did, it was to a very select group of places. And so as I grew up in that house, the place that I thought was the creme de la creme of fine dining, that I wanted to go to every year for my birthday and order the exact same thing because I could not imagine a culinary delight better than this, was I wanted to go to Chili's and get a bacon cheeseburger with a frosted root beer mug. And that, to me, I was like, this is the apex. All of humanity has come together in this one meal. And I would beg my parents to take me there for my birthday every year because that food, to me, was the best. That is, until I met my wife, Mallory, a girl who had grown up in a home that was from a far wider culinary world and who began to not only invite me into a relationship with her family, but began to introduce me to tastes and to foods that I had never seen before. And that cheeseburger, as good as it was, and is still a good cheeseburger, that craving began to die. It began to fade. Not because it ceased to be good, but because I had tasted something better. Do you hear what Peter is saying to you? You lived in a world where you had only perishable hopes. And in your pursuit of those hopes, you pursued malice and deceit and slander and hypocrisy and envy because you thought you were in competition with everyone else around you. That it all depended on what you could do and so you tore people apart and you ate food that did not bring you life but brought you death. And unlike that cheeseburger, it wasn't good. It was always evil. But now, you have tasted something in Jesus that is infinitely better. You've tasted the one who is himself the resurrection and the life. And it's Jesus. And it's Jesus alone upon whom you must feed. If you were to grow into what God has called you to be. I love being Presbyterian. But sometimes as Presbyterians we can be too intellectually minded for our own good. Jesus, in this text, he doesn't just want you to know things about him. He wants you to taste him. He wants you to experience him in the very depth of your soul and to be fed by him in a way that nothing else can. He is inviting you to a well that does not have a bottom to a food that doesn't grow stale when you eat it time and time again, but a food that just grows richer and richer with every bite because you discover there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in this Jesus. A tender shepherd 
who is sufficient for every single one of your needs and who has delivered you before, who delivers you now, and who will deliver you in the very end. And Peter, Peter says, crave that Jesus. Feast on him wherever he says he is found, in his word, with his people, in prayer, through the sacraments, and by obedience to his commands and the way of life to which he calls you. Because when we feed on him by faith, that's when we grow. That's when weak loves become strong. Hypocritical loves become sincere. Apathetic loves become earnest ones. And selfish loves become sacrificial ones. That's when the people of God become what God has called them to be. God has made you a part in Jesus of his redeemed family. And it is a gift not to be ignored or abandoned. It is a gift to be embraced by loving one another with the love that he has given us in Jesus Christ and a love into which we are to grow by feeding on the only food that truly satisfies, Jesus himself. We pray. Father, we're grateful this morning that, Lord, you have provided for our every need. That, Lord, you are a God who even as we prayed or sang earlier, Lord, you are a God who has come down in your Son. You've come near to your people. You have fed us with a food richer than anything this world contains. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that would crave you and you alone. That, Lord, you would make us a people who not only know that we are in your family and not only know that we are a part of your church, but, Lord, a people who embrace that church and love that church with all that we have. And, Lord, we ask, do that here. You are the only one who can empower us to love in that way. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship our God. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.